This is Partners in Practice, a weekly series dedicated to the evolving field of the advanced practice clinician. Here is your host physician assistant, Lisa DeAndre Linnell. Lately, it seems like the only constant in medicine is change. With new compliance audits, ICD-10, and HIPAA transitions, medical practices need to be preparing today to be ready for what's coming down the road tomorrow. My guest today is Betsy Nicoletti, co-founder of Codopedia.com, developer of the Accurate Coding System, and author of the Field Guide to Physician Coding. She's here today to simplify ICD-10, HIPAA 5010, and breaking down some complex coding rules to help us stay away from an audit and get paid for the work that we do. Hi, Betsy. Welcome to Partners in Practice. Hi, Lisa. It's great to be with you today. Betsy, ICD-10, what's the current compliance date and what should we be doing now to be ready for the change? The current compliance date remains October 2013. And what you should be doing now depends on how good your memory is. I'm afraid if I learn too much about ICD-10, I'll have forgotten it all by the time (laughs) it comes to use it. Having said that, there are some things we should do. I think it's time to buy an ICD-10 book and have it in the office and begin to get familiar with the chapters and the formatting of it. I think that it will be important to look at your most 100 commonly used ICD-9 codes and see how closely they map to ICD-10. Some of them are going to map perfectly and you won't have to worry anymore. Some of them are not going to map perfectly and you want to know about that now. The other thing I suggest is I think we're going to need to have some cash on hand when we convert to ICD-10 because it may not work perfectly and we may see cash flow problems. You know, I was at the MGMA conference in 2010, and I heard a lecturer say that ICD-10 conversion will cost a physician practice with 10 physicians $300,000. Can you comment on that? Seems like a lot of money to me. Me too. (laughs) When you put that out across the entire healthcare system. The industry estimates are high, and I think that there are going to be costs in software. I don't think many of our vendors are going to do this for free for us. And it goes all the way across from your practice management system, your clearinghouse, if you have a denial management program, all of those pieces of software are going to need to be updated. Why do we need ICD-10? What was wrong with (laughs) (laughs) ICD-9? They tell us there aren't enough codes, that they've run out of codes in ICD-9, that it is not exact enough and that we need to move there for more specificity of coding. So there's supposed to be five times as many codes. I can't keep up with the current codes. How can practitioners manage the learning curve of this? You know, it's going to make having a favorites list even more important in your computer system. And I think we're going to need to have really good edits in the system so that if it's a code that should have had five digits, and we've only put four in, just like we do for ICD-9, that it stops us. I also think that there's a role for coders here. Now, I know that with electronic health records, we've moved coding to the clinician. I don't know if that was a good idea or not, but we have. But I do think that when it gets too complex, even now with ICD-9, you should have the option to shoot it to a coder and let them look up the code for you. So let's talk about another fan favorite. HIPAA 5010. What is it? Why do we need it? And how do we prepare for that? This may be another thing we don't think we need, but that the government thinks we do need. The 
new format for transmitting claims is this 5010 format. Right now we're using 4010. It adds additional fields. It hopefully will be more standardized across the industry. The other thing that it's going to add is some standardization about eligibility and enrollment so that our offices will have the ability to get that information online in real time. So that could be a help for us in the long run, increase our cash flow and decrease our denials. The important thing now, Medicare says we should be testing our practice management systems with our contractor in the first quarter of this year. Really, I think that what we need to do is make sure you have an up-to-date practice management version. This is going to cost money, too. Our practice management systems aren't going to do this for free for us. If anybody out there still has some software that their uncle wrote for them, you're not going to in a few years because you're not going to be able to comply with all this, these new regulations. So cloud computing is the way most EHR systems are headed. Do you think that these systems will decrease the compliance burden for ICD-10 and HIPAA 5010? I don't think that where you store the data is going to make a big difference. It may be that it's going to be easier to standardize and that it will mean less individual updating of your systems. I'm not sure it's going to really help all that much. If you're just joining us, you're listening to Partners in Practice on ReachMD XM160, the channel for medical professionals. I'm PA Lisa DeAndre Linnell, and I'm speaking with Betsy Nicoletti, co-founder of Codipedia.com, developer of the Accurate Coding System, and author of the Field Guide to Physician Coding. Today, she's simplifying ICD-10, HIPAA 5010, and breaking down some complex coding rules to keep us away from an audit and to get us paid for the work that we do. So, Betsy, I'd like to talk about the Office of the Inspector General and the OIG work plan. Can you tell us what this is? I sure can. But, Lisa, you may be the only person who wants to talk about the Office of the Inspector (laughs) General. That's my job. (laughs) (laughs) So the Office of Inspector General is charged with protecting government money, basically, and part of it works on health care. Every year they release a work plan that tells us ahead of time what their topics of interest are for home health agencies, physician practices, hospitals, etc. Of course, what we care about is the Part B part of the work plan. And I'll just give you a few highlights from the 2011 work plan. Place of service is an issue. So if you're a surgical practice and you're doing work in both the office and a surgery center, you need to let your staff know where you provided that service. E&M services are on their radar this year, including level of service, global services, and cloned electronic health records. There's a lot of work on outpatient therapy services, particularly independent practices, and labs have made their hit list this year. Tell us about the labs. If you are an independent diagnostic testing facility and you are in an area of high usage, you can be sure that Medicare is going to take a look because that, or, and the Office of Inspector General because that's been an area of abuse. They also think that there's been some unbundling done of clinical lab tests, and if so, they want to get that money back, and that there have been excessive payments for some of the diagnostic tests. One other piece is the use of the hemoglobin A1C test. I think they have found that some clinicians 
buy a machine and then they test very frequently. So they're going to take a look at that as well. So the identical electronic health record notes. So apparently the government's not happy with the notes. They're incentivizing us to buy the programs, but not happy with the way we're using them. What's bothering them? I guess they're speaking out of both sides of their mouths. (laughs) They have found, the Medicare contractors, that when they look at notes for a patient that was seen, you know, three or four times in a year, that the notes are almost identical to one another from the visit in January and March and April and June. And they think there is an excessive amount of copying and pasting going on. Well, if the medical history is unchanged, then what's the problem with using the same notes as long as you've reviewed the family history, the medical history? And most folks, it doesn't change a lot. I absolutely agree with you. I think that it's totally legitimate to bring forward the past medical family and social history, the medication list. We don't need to reinvent the wheel. That's why we got the electronic health record. What they're finding is that the history of the present illness is unchanged or the exam is a long templated exam and no different from patient to patient or from one visit to the next. And, of course, the assessment in the plan should change somewhat based on the status of the patient's conditions that day and what you're suggesting that they do. So how are they looking at this and what do we need to know? They are getting notes from one patient who's been seen multiple times in a year in a group practice either by the same physician or sometimes by, you know, the OBGYN doctor, the internist, and the neurologist in looking to see if the information is absolutely identical or if it is different in a way that we would expect in a normal clinical note. I think it's worth it for practices to look at their own notes in this way. I looked at some urology notes recently and on the same patient, and literally, Lisa, when you held up each page, they were exact replicas. All that was different was the date of service. Okay. Well, let's move on to the global initiative. What's going on with the global billing? The global surgical package came to be in 1992. So I worked in a surgery office before then. And this physician would go see his patient in the morning, bill a hospital visit, do the surgery, bill for the surgery, see the patient in the afternoon, bill for a hospital visit. Well, Medicare stopped that in 1992 by developing a global payment for surgical services. And this includes minor and major surgical procedures that may have 0, 10, or 90 global days. So they say that appendectomy, we're paying you for the preoperative, operative, and postoperative services all in one lump sum. In the office, when that's most relevant is when you're doing a minor surgical procedure that has either zero or ten global days, and you're trying to decide whether you can bill for an office visit or an E&M service and the procedure on the same day. Yeah, let's talk about that, because we do run into that a lot in primary care practices where the patient, A, will come in and have a minor procedure done, and then come in five days later with a cough and perhaps see a different provider in the office, and we have to uh, use modifiers. Is that okay, or is that flagged for global as well? And then I'd also like to talk about when is the ENM code appropriate with that. Okay. Let's start with the initial visit. If a patient presents to you for a planned procedure or for a minor skin procedure, you know, wart destruction, 
you bill only for the procedure itself. So those are the two instances when you would bill only for the procedure, when it was planned or when it's a minor skin procedure. And the reason for the second is that Medicare and NCCI say that the decision to perform a minor surgical procedure is included in the payment for the minor procedure and shouldn't be billed separately. But let's say you have a patient who comes in for their hypertension, diabetes, and hyperlipidemia, and while they're there, they say, could you look at this lesion? And you say, we're going to excise that lesion today. Then you bill for both, and you apply the 25 modifier on the E&M service, on the office visit. The OIG initiative a couple years ago was modifier 25. Is this one of the things that they're looking at? Yes, they were looking at whether you should bill an E&M service on that day. Okay. Uh, let's say you're a GYN practice, a patient comes in and has abnormal bleeding. Of course you would bill an E&M service and then the endometrial biopsy. Or you have a patient who comes in with shoulder pain. You need to bill for the assessment, the E&M service, which is separate and distinct, as well as the injection. The problem with modifier 25 is that it's not always or never. Sometimes you can bill the E&M and sometimes you can't, and that makes it very difficult to, when you're the clinician to keep that in mind, should I be billing for both today or not. Well, we talked about OIG. Let's talk briefly about the RAC program or the Medicare Recovery Audit Contractor Program, which is now in all 50 states. What are they doing with that? The good news for physicians and physician practices with the Recovery Audit Contractor Program is that they're paid a percentage of collections. So if you're a Recovery Audit Contractor and you're a private company hired by Medicare to review claims and return money that was paid incorrectly, and you're paid 10%, say, would you rather review an inpatient admission that was billed for $10,000 and get 10% of that, or would you rather review an E&M service that was billed at $100 and get 10% of that? So most of the RAC work has been on the Part A side or durable medical equipment or labs. They are looking at physician practices and an unusual coding profile, an unusual use of modifiers, something that makes you stick out statistically in the paid claims file will get your notice. There aren't a lot of RAC letters going out to primary care practices at the current time. That is good news. That is. Betsy, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you. I'd like to thank my guest, Betsy Nicoletti, for helping us prepare for what's coming down the road in medicine. You've been listening to Partners in Practice on ReachMD XM160. You can download this program and any other program in our library at ReachMD.com. You can also follow us on Facebook and Twitter. Thank you for listening.